Today we're beginning a new study in our sermon series, uh, in our sermon studies during worship. We are looking today at uh, the Old Testament prophet Joel. Joel is the second of what are known as the minor prophets. So if you're looking for Joel, you can find the New Testament and then turn backward about 45, 50 pages. Uh, That's where you can find Joel. He's right after Hosea in our cart Bibles. It's 760. Today looking at Joel chapter 1. This is a short book. One of the reasons that we are doing Joel, why we're covering Joel, is that it is a short book. Uh, And between now and the summer, we're hoping to get two of these short minor prophets covered. Uh, The other reason that we're looking at Joel together is that although the first chapter is rather heavy, and sometimes we overlook Joel because we read the first chapter and it's plague and it's locust and it's wailing and lamentation, and we say, I want to find something with the gospel in it. There's a lot of the gospel in Joel. Uh, There's a lot of repentance and turning. There are prophecies and promises that are fulfilled during the New Testament age. And so, Lord willing, it'll take us about four sermons to get through these three chapters. We're going to take it in rather large chunks. But today we're looking at Joel chapter 1, reading the entirety of this uh, chapter, 20 verses. And before we uh, read this word together, please join me again. In, uh, in prayer to the Lord, seeking his blessing on it. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the prophets and the apostles, the, uh, the stones uh, that were laid on the chief cornerstone, the foundation of the church that you are building. Lord, we pray today that you would give us joy in the Lord. As we read these heavy words, we pray that you would cause us to cry out to you, just as Joel does, just as he tells the people to do in Israel. Lord, help us to have our hearts turn to you. Help us to see the glory of your goodness. Help us to be encouraged by the gospel of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here now, the word of God as we find it in the prophecy of Joel in the first chapter. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Petuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number, its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth to the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. 
The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up. Fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. Someone wisely said that the past is another country, but they do things differently there. Just a single chapter of an Old Testament prophet confirms that suspicion. When we read the prophet Joel, we are transported to a foreign country. We're transported to a place where locusts descend and devour everything in sight. We're transported to a country where life and death hinges on famine and pestilence, on drought and plague. When we read the prophet Joel, we are transported to a forgotten land, a land without can openers, a land without freezers full of food to see you through the end of the week. We're transported, when we read the book of Joel, to a place without uh, GPS navigation without farm subsidies, without anti-lock breaks, and without antibiotics, we're transported to a place without polio vaccines, without uh, artificial intelligence, without indoor plumbing, without all the other advantages that make our modern life feel safe and manageable and secure. And when we read the chapter that we've just read in Joel, we may feel very thankful that we do not live in a world quite like Joel's world where a single catastrophe can upend an entire society seemingly overnight. Then again, there are disadvantages to not living in a world like Joel's world. Namely, what we lose in our modern contemporary world is the sensitivity that many older generations had to the spiritual realities happening all around them. You've probably heard uh, older peoples, older generations, older societies ridiculed for their simplistic beliefs. You know, back then, people believed that there were angels and demons hidden behind every rock, behind every tree, and how foolish and 21st century scientific man looks down on Joel, looks down on the apostles, looks down on most of human history right up until about five minutes ago. 
There are all so many superstitious fools, aren't they? How silly to imagine that there are unseen powers and forces at work behind concrete realities that we can see and measure. How superstitious. Well, history has no shortage of superstitions. But then again, what scientific man thumbs his nose at, most of us, I think, could do well to reclaim. We could do well to reclaim a bit of spiritual conviction. A sense that when we look at the world around us, whether we're seeing things that seem pleasant to us or perilous to us, this conviction that we believe and know that the God of heaven and earth is at work. That he's the one who directs all things. That he's the one, as we confess together today, did you notice it? That God did not forsake the things that he made or give them up to fortune or chance, but he rules and governs them according to his holy will so that nothing happens in this world without his appointment. Most of us could reclaim some conviction that that is actually true. That there are spiritual realities behind the things that we see. Behind this... Uh, this calamity sometimes and disaster, this understanding that God is speaking. That's what we find when we read Joel. Conviction that God is speaking, and specifically in disaster, he is speaking in the place that we are most likely to listen. When he speaks to us through disaster, he demands our response. You know, when you meet somebody for the first time, you have a series of questions that you like to ask them. You want to make a point of contact. You want to situate them in your mind and understand who they are. And so you ask about their family or, or about their job. You ask where they're from. You ask if they have any mutual acquaintances that you know. You, you want to know uh, this person that you've just met. And we have the same questions when we come to a book of the Bible for the first time. We know that this is a divine book. It's given to us by the Lord, but it's also a human book. And we've got our questions about the people that we're here and affected by this, be about the man who wrote down these words. Well, when we come to Joel and to his prophecy, almost all of those questions about the man and his life and his situation go unanswered. Basically, the only thing that we know for certain about Joel, the son of Petuel, is that his name was Joel and his father's name was Petuel. Anything beyond that is a gamble. We know that he was a prophet. There are hints along the way that he probably ministered in Judah rather than in the northern kingdom of Israel. He seems to be acquainted with what happened in the temple, but so were most Jews. There are many who would tell you that he was certainly a post-exilic prophet, that he ministered after the people came back and, and rebuilt the temple and the land. There are others that will tell you, no, 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 he's a pre-exilic prophet, and then he was there actually in the early days of the kingdom, and we actually have no idea. Most of the commentators that I read this week quoted John Calvin on this issue, and so I should do the same for you. Calvin essentially said it doesn't matter. <laughs> all these side issues, all the things that, that fill the 40 pages at the beginning of every commentary that, that tell us about the man and his time and his place and his message, all these things are not so important. Calvin says the import of his doctrine is evident, though the time be obscure and uncertain. That is, the message of Joel is clear. It is a truth for all time. In fact, that's exactly where Joel begins. There is something that has happened in the land. There is this disaster, and it needs to be told down through the ages. There's a catastrophe that has happened that is so terrible that not even the oldest elders in the land can remember anything like it. 
there is a catastrophe that has happened that ought to be told to generation after generation after generation. This is a universal message we find in Joel. Even if we've never experienced what he tells us in verse 4, that the cutting locust and the swarming locust and the hopping locust and the destroying locust have taken everything. And in that verse there, he's communicating the idea of an unparalleled destruction. Wave after wave after wave of destroying insect. That's the way that it happens sometimes in locust plagues. Uh, locust plagues uh, can be enormous. Uh, when the situation is right, when uh, one swarm is uh, in contact with another swarm, and then another swarm converges, and it moves from being a swarm of locusts to what we call scientifically a plague of locusts. That's a scientific classification. And plagues can be so large that they can contain up to 10 billion insects. They can cover hundreds of thousands of acres. With one locust right on top of another locust, they can destroy absolutely every living plant in sight. You know what happens when that many locusts get together in one place? They make more locusts. And a single egg-laying female can lay about 800 legs at a time, eggs at a time, excuse me. That would be scary. About 800 eggs at a time before she goes off and dies somewhere else, but a couple weeks later, all those 800 eggs hatched about the same time. And if there are enough egg layers laying eggs in the same place at the same time, it's the second wave of the locust plague that gets you. Because they come back and they cut off any new growth that's budded up in the weeks in between. In the 1960s, there was a grasshopper plague that covered a large portion of California, covered 200,000 acres of farmland. One observer said that they left fields that looked as bare as the floor. He said that what they don't eat, they seem to cut off for enjoyment. And so the cutting and the swarming and the hopping and the destroying, he's talking about an absolute unmitigated agricultural annihilation. This is dire. This is something that they have never seen before, never experienced before. This is a plague of Egyptian proportions. The language here is similar to what the Lord said in Exodus, what he was going to do in Egypt and leave the land desolate. And a desolation like this, a disaster like this, calls for only one thing. It calls for lamentation. That's our first point. That's what disaster demands from us. Disaster demands our lamentation. So you notice these, these over, overflowing verbs in this chapter. These are imperatives, by the way. This is a call to do this, and the verbs are weep. The verbs are wail, lament, and mourn. This is a funeral scene. The land is dying, and with the land, the people who live on it. This is a time for mourning and crying out and for lamentation. And the prophet calls the people to do just that. He does that in... Uh, himself a few waves. He highlights a few groups, and with each group that he highlights, he highlights a different thing that is lost in the land through this desolation that's come upon them. He begins by calling the drunkards to lament in verses 5 to 7. That seems like a strange place to start with the drunkards, uh, until you remember that drunkenness really is a sin of overindulgence. It's a sin of wastefulness. 
It's a sin that depends on having some abundance there to make that sin possible. And this is what we find is lost through this call to the drunkards, that what is lost is the abundance of the land. Normally they're the ones who are disconnected from reality, so we find them here in verse 5. They're sleeping, they're in a stupor. All this has come against them and they're unaware, but soon the withdrawal is coming. Soon the shakes and the tremors, soon the sweats because their favorite indulgence has been cut off, because there is no more abundance in the land to fuel their sin. He says that the fig and the vine have been cut off, and there is uh, an important pair of terms there in verse 7. He says, this, uh, this nation has come against, uh, against my land with sharp teeth, with this devouring, uh, ravenous appetite, and it says it has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. Those are important terms. The vine and the fig tree, we tend to think of the promised land as a land flowing with milk and honey. But that's the picture of abundance in the land. But just as important in the mind of the Old Testament saint was the figure of the spreading vine and the fruitful fig tree. You can find that paired all throughout the Old Testament as a picture of abundance. You find it uh, showing us the prosperity at the height of the Old Kingdom. 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 25 says, and Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba. Every man lived under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. And now he says it's gone. All the abundance of the land is gone. There is no more escape from reality for these men, these drunkards. Then in verses 8 to 10, he moves from the sinners to the saints. He goes from calling the drunkards to wail to calling the priest to lament. And here we find a loss of sustenance, a loss of future hope. They're to go in and they're to wail. They, they have no more communion. They have no more fellowship with the Lord because the offerings that they were to give have been cut off. And the pathos of, of all of it, the feeling of this is, is pictured in this image of the bride mourning for her bridegroom. There are a few images that evoke this kind of, uh, of feeling and emotion in our minds. Maybe a mother mourning for her child. Maybe a prisoner of war watching his, uh, his family taken from him. Maybe this wife, this bride-to-be, really, mourning over a marriage before it could even be consummated. And so instead of wearing the fine white linen embroidered with bright colors, she wears the sad sackcloth of sorrow. Instead of thinking, hopefully, of a future with children and happy memories, her, her future is black. It is empty. In typical Middle Eastern fashion, she's probably wailing far louder and, uh, and, and far more uh, exuberantly than any Western woman would ever let herself to cry, whether in public or in private. She's pouring out her lament, and this is the picture we ought to apply to the priests. There's no grain, there's no wine, there's no oil for worship. There is no gift from the Lord to turn back into a sacrifice of praise. Again, the terms are important. Verse 10, the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. These are the staples in the land. Not the abundance, but the, the bare minimum. The things the people needed, the daily provisions. Now it seems that all of God's covenant promises to provide for his people on the land are set aside. They've been put on a shelf somewhere. 
when there's this time without worship, without sustenance, without communion. And so Joel calls for a lament. He calls for mourning and weeping from the drunkards and the priests and from the farmers as well. We see this in verses 11 and 12. And of all the workers in the land, the, the locust plague must have hit the farmers more poignantly than any. The plague came and it devoured everybody's future just the same, but it also devoured the farmer's past. All their work, all their labor, all their months, and indeed years of pruning and cultivating and shaping the vine and the trees in just the right way to produce the most abundant harvest. When the locusts strip all the green growth, they then begin to go through the bark to get at the cambium layer of the trees and the vines where the sap flows and where there's something to eat. So they strip it bare. They leave it white. They leave it unable to recover. Absolute, complete destruction. And it's the loss of a gladness here. The time of harvest used to be the most joyful time in Israel. There's psalms singing about being Glad in the Lord, just as people are glad at the harvest, because when the harvest comes in, there's hope for a future. Now that hope is gone, and the gladness with it. Not just the provisions, but the sweetness as well. The date palm, and the pomegranate, and the apricot, and the apple, and the extra portions, all those little simple blessings that we like to have at the end of the meal just to sweeten the plate a bit. And they're all cut off. And just like the trees and the vines, we're told that gladness itself has dried up from the children of man. Here was this land pregnant with promise, and the land has brought forth a miscarriage. And there's a loss of joy and gladness, and it ceases. And so Joel tells us to wail and to weep and to mourn and to lament. This is what disaster demands. It's practically what it squeezes from us involuntarily. Because lamentation often feels like a reflex rather than a response, we can forget how important it is. We can forget the value that we find in lamentation. I don't mean to make light of anybody's suffering. Whether the people of Israel or the suffering that you face, the things that make you lament in your own life. But do you realize that there's a value in lamentation? In seeing and wailing and crying out to the Lord and recognizing your situation, the desolation that may be coming upon you. Do you realize that that's a good thing that the Lord has given us? Do you notice that this passage is full of imperatives? It's full of action words. Joel is telling us, do something. But there's none of the language of rebuilding. Isn't that the action that we think we should take at this moment? Disaster has come upon us. Let's rebuild. Let's replant. Let's water. Let's uh, let's build something up. And he says, no, what you need first is to mourn and to lament. You need to cry out and and recognize what's happening. The importance of lamentation is is that it's this mechanism that the Lord has given us to help us to feel the full loss of the things that we suffer. Sometimes we need that. Sometimes we need lamentation to, to allow us to sit with our smallness. You know, grief is one of the ways we come to grips with our inability to change our situation. This is the way that Raymond Dillard put it. He said, in the face of a constant hubris on the part of the human race, there are many ways in which the creator chooses to remind proud humans of their impotence, even in the face of the least of God's creatures. 
He said human beings could no more hold back the locusts than they could arrest the tides, stop the changing phases of the moon. They could only sit back and watch. That's the way it sometimes happens. The way it happened in Israel, that's the way it sometimes happens for you. There is this slow motion crash, and you can't stop it, and you can only watch it happening. There are disasters that fall on your family. There are disasters that fall on your nation. There are disasters that fall on your church and on your health and in your relationships, and sometimes you can't stop them, and lamentation helps you to see how helpless you are because sometimes we need that. Because our problem is that we don't like to feel our smallness. We don't like to have to lament. We don't like to feel out of control. That's part of the peril of these disastrous things that come upon us. It's not just the loss that we suffer. It's what the loss reveals about us. And so because we don't like to feel small, we don't like to lament, we find ways to avoid it. We find ways to sidestep it and convince ourselves that we don't need that. It's not all that bad, is it? We don't have to feel that way. We don't have to engage with what we've actually lost and what's actually happening. There are lots of ways that people do it, in the church, out of the church. There are some unbelievers probably that do it with their persistent materialistic worldview. Well, it's a loss, but, you know, it happens. Nobody likes to be on the losing end, but it comes around uh, sometimes, and sometimes it's your turn, and sometimes it's another one's turn. Why is it Ukraine this week and not America? Why is it somebody in Haiti and not you? Why is it somebody else? Well, uh, you know, it's all just matter changing states, right? That's a materialistic worldview. It doesn't mean that the materialist doesn't mourn. They suffer loss the same way that we do. They feel grief the same way that we do, but when the materialist mourns, they do so unreasonably. It doesn't fit their worldview. It makes no sense. It's all just matter-changing states. Nutrition in the ground becomes nutrition in the plants, becomes nutrition in the locusts, and when they die, something else will eat them. It will happen to you the same way when you get cancer, when your children get sick, when the stock market crashes, when your job is outsourced. Uh, let's not lament. It's, all just, it's just a thing that happens. Don't worry about it. There are probably some that avoid lamentation that way. There are others, uh, the spiritual but not religious types, uh, who have a, a sort of new agey bent towards some half-formed idea of karma. Right? Well, if, if what you're getting is bad, then it means that what you did is bad. It's simplistic, really. It's an A and B correlation. It's absolute retributive justice. And if you can't remember what sin you committed last Thursday, it was probably something you did in a past life. Because that's all we can come up with to explain. Because it must be retributive justice. Uh, never mind the fact that that retributive justice comes from an unthinking, unfeeling, impersonal, universal force. Well, today it's your turn for karma, and maybe tomorrow it's somebody else's turn, and all you can do is try better next time. And we avoid lamentation. We downplay it. We even do it as believers. We even do it as Calvinists. I think we probably do it especially as Calvinists. This is not an application that, that applies to everyone. I realize many of you are very balanced in your theology, but sometimes we can get unbalanced. We can take one truth and, and turn it into half of a lie. We can take the doctrine of God's sovereignty, his absolute sway over the universe that we confess together today, and we can turn it into something that makes God uncharitable. 
Something that we just have to deal with rather than something we can rejoice in. Something that we can, uh, something that we can turn to when we find a need and a loss in our life. And, and instead we make it just, well, God is in charge. He's on the throne. Then you have, uh, you have no right to grumble and you have no right to feel pain at any sort of loss. God's sovereign after all. Don't you know that? We feel that twinge of guilt when we, when we express our anger or our frustration or our lamentation when we really do suffer loss in this life. We find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, 13, that because of the gospel, we do not grieve as those who have no hope, but we do grieve. Brothers and sisters, we need to learn how to lament. We need to make sure that we don't confuse Calvinism for Stoicism. We don't say that because God is on the throne, we have to feel nothing, suffer nothing, experience nothing. Sometimes we need to see how bad things really are and, and what loss actually feels like. Sometimes we need to recognize that we grieve. Yes, we grieve with hope. Yes, there's the hope of the resurrection. Yes, there's the Lord Jesus Christ, but we grieve, don't we? We grieve because we see the curse of our sin touching our lives in profound ways, taking from us the, the blessings and the opportunities and the people who mean the most to us. And we grieve over those things. We mourn because our sin and the death that is introduced into creation has consequences. Disaster, whether big or small, makes a demand of us. It demands first our lamentation. It's the largest of the three points, by the way. It demands our lamentation. Secondly, it demands our awakening. Skip down to verse 15. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. This is a major central concept in the book of Joel. Every sermon that you will hear in the book of Joel will have the phrase, the day of the Lord hidden somewhere in it. It shows up in every chapter. It shows up more than once in some chapters. It will be developed more as we go along. It will be developed especially next week in chapter 2. But for now, you need to know that Joel is giving us the outline. He'll fill in the details later. He wants Israel to know. He wants us to know that there is a day coming. He also wants them to know that the calamity they are currently experiencing is a warning. It's not random. It's not a fluke. It's not something that just happens. The disaster that the people in Judah have experienced is a foretaste of judgment. And we say, well, Joel, how do you know that? Uh, we hear these people claiming that God is judging all sorts of people. We look around the world and there are these crazies out there. Say, oh, judgment over here and, and judgment over there. How can we be sure, Joel, uh, that what you're saying is judgment is actually judgment? And Joel has two answers. The first one is that he's a prophet. Uh, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Joel. That's what we need to know. This is uh, this is divine revelation. We can trust him. This isn't his word. He hasn't come up with this. He's not out there to gather a following, to sell some books on the bestseller list. He's a prophet. And the second answer he might give to this is that he's a spiritual person, as we all should be. Joel lives in a world where he can draw conclusions between what he sees happening and what God has already said. Take a look at the questions in verse 16. Is not the food cut off from before our eyes? 
joy and gladness from the house of our God? He's asking this question. He's saying, wake up. Pay attention. What do you see happening? What does it mean for where we are? Can't you see the signs of judgment already descending in the promised land? And maybe in the back of his mind, he's got those curses from the law in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 28 is one of the places that we go that the Lord says, this is what I will bring against my people if they refuse to listen to my word. There's some parallels there. God says, if they will not obey the voice of the Lord, Deuteronomy 28, 22, the Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat and with drought and with blight and with mildew, and they shall pursue you until you perish. Verse 38, he says, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, you shall carry much seed into the field and you shall gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor of the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. How do we know that this is judgment? Well, because the Lord has said so. Because Joel is a spiritual person who draws conclusions between what he sees and what God has already said. It's God's word that interprets his experience, not the other way around. He's a spiritual person. He's telling the people in Israel, in Judah, that there is a recognizable pattern. And if only they have spiritual eyes to see the spiritual realities, they will see it as well. At least here, and at least this situation, God's prophet is telling us that calamity has been sent with an intention. It's been sent to wake Israel up regarding the judgment that is to come. That is another good outcome of the disasters that we face is that beyond feeling our smallness, it sometimes forces us to wake up to how bad things really are. I have a family friend uh, who every year for the last several years uh, marks the anniversary of the death of his ex-girlfriend, girlfriend at the time. Uh, she died almost a decade ago, and, and this friend of mine has remarried. He's had kids. He's moved on with his life in many ways. Yet every year he puts a post on his Facebook. Every year he gets together with people who knew both of them. He talks with people he knows that knew her as well. And he rehearses that loss that he suffered. He does it in part because she meant a great deal to him. And that loss was real and it was profound. He also does it because he gets the sense that it was her death that saved his life. That's because my friend and his girlfriend were both drug users at the time of her death. They were both high on heroin when she overdosed. And he was left with this sense of certainty that if he is to continue in the same path that they both were on, he would be the next one in the body bag. Sometimes the losses that we experience are a wake-up call. Sometimes they work that way in our lives, and that's a good thing. Well, there's a value in the disasters that we experience. It warns us and it wakes us up if only we have spiritual eyes to see. There are limits, of course. We're not prophets. And there are no living prophets. And so we need to, to not be too specific about pointing to that thing over there or that person over there and saying that is God's judgment. But in a general way, can't we see the patterns happening? The patterns of God's judgment in time warning us of the judgment at the end of times. 
We do this with lots of other areas of our life. Every time you see a child baptized in the church, it's good for us to remember our own baptism, to remember the promises that were proclaimed over us through those waters. Every time you attend a wedding, it's good, couples, to remember the vows that you made. Every time you walk through a cemetery, every headstone, every grave marker ought to be a reminder to you that you soon will be where they are, that you too will join the ranks of those who will have to give an account for your life. Can't you see the patterns that God has baked into our world? Why should we not be awakened when we see disasters happening all around us? Children dying of starvation in a third world country, a nation rising against nation and injustice and oppression all over the land. Should we not be awakened by what the Lord is showing us? We don't have to be prophets, but we need to be spiritual people. Disasters demand our lamentation. Disasters demand our awakening. But thirdly, disasters demand our repentance. Joel says, alas, for the day is coming, and we want to know what can be done, Joel. So far, you've given us some things to do, but it all amounts to to wailing and weeping, and there's no remedy yet. There's nothing to stand between us and this judgment that is coming, and and we want to know what can we do. And the answer comes from the prophet to repent, to return, to take your cries and, and turn them to the Lord who himself is coming. It's still lamentation, actually, but it's lamentation directed in the right Uh, direction. Lamentation pointed to the God of heaven to to cry out to him. The priests are to lead the way. We see that. There's a repetition in verse 9 of verse 13. It says that the grain and, and the drink are withheld. This is the unthinkable in the land of Israel. Unthinkable because every morning and every evening new offerings were to be made. This is unthinkable because once a week the showbread was to be replaced in the presence of the Lord. It was to be a perpetual reminder of God's covenant promises. And now they have nothing. They have nothing to offer the Lord in worship. And so Joel says, offer him what you have. Offer your empty hands. Offer your uh, your wails and your cries. Empty. Uh, Offer him your, your torn hearts and your contrite spirits. Will the Lord not accept that as a pleasing sacrifice and a, and a pleasing aroma in his sight? The people, too, are to gather. Verse 14, consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders, all the inhabitants of the land, to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Can you imagine calling a fast in the midst of a famine? Voluntarily foregoing what little food you had left. He's calling them to an act of faith, to live as though they actually believe that man does not live by bread alone. So too, this solemn assembly, that was a complete governmental shutdown. Everything ceased in the land. No work, no feasting, no joy, no rebuilding, no replanting. Stop and cry out to the Lord. The only way that they will do that is if they understand the urgency of their situation. That their greatest need is not their own strength and ingenuity and agricultural prowess. What they need is the Lord to turn to them in favor and in mercy. So he says, cry out to the Lord. Repent. He says, be at least as wise as the beasts. You notice verse 18 and verse 20, even the beasts of the field pant for you. 
It's not the first time that a prophet has chided the people of Israel for not understanding what even the animals understand. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 3. The prophet says that the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. He's saying, don't be too wise for your own good. The way out is not by your own strength, it's by turning. It's through repentance. And I say, actually, the, the word repentance doesn't show up in this chapter, does it? I hear wailing, I hear weeping, I, I hear this, this repetition of the language, but, but where is the, the repentance? Well, this is the language of repentance in Joel. Take a look forward to chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Return to me with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. This is the language of repentance. It's wailing and mourning. It's grief over our sin. And it's in the context of fasting. It's in connection with judgment. This is also the language in chapter 2 of God's character that he revealed at Sinai. Do you remember that? The people were caught in sin and God's judgment was coming against them. And Moses cried out. And he wanted to know the character of the Lord. How could he trust that the Lord would turn and save and deliver his people? And the Lord came down to Moses on the mountain and he declared, The Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, abounding in steadfast love for thousands of generations. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. And here in chapter 2, as we'll see more next week, the Lord calls his people to repent, and he tells them that when you repent, I will turn to you. I'll turn to you in mercy and in favor. This is the language of repentance. It's what disaster demands. This also is the language of Christ our Savior, ultimately. So you remember that uh, passage in Luke 13 reminds us that Jesus also lived in a time where people were perplexed by the things that they saw around them, the calamities and the disasters that befell the people. And we read that there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. You know the situation? They were distressed. There was this blasphemous violence, and if anything looked and smelled like judgment, that was it, Right? They want to know what the prophet of God has to say. How bad were those people? Why did judgment fall on them? There's calamity over there. Don't you see it? Jesus, give us your interpretation of the things. You can imagine how other people would respond to the same question. Well, the modern materialists would shrug it off. It's a shame, perhaps. And maybe they'd offer you a diagnosis of, of Pilate's megalomania. Maybe they would offer you a a mental health professional to give some therapy and help you through your struggles in the world that you see around you, but that's as far as the help would go. And the new agey person might chalk it up to chakras and the universe and the cycles of the moon, and karma has come at last. Well, and the Christian Stoic would probably quote C.S. Lewis, you know he's not a tame lion. And again, the half-truth is the worst lie, isn't it? The Christian Stoic would tell you, don't, don't worry about that. You never mind. You stay the course. You keep your chin up. 
if ever there was a spiritual man, it was Jesus. Anointed with the Holy Spirit beyond measure, and he takes a completely different tack from all of those who might have answered the question. He takes the calamity happening over there, and he presses it home to the people who were in front of him. He answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What's Jesus' interpretation? What message should we take from the disasters that we see around us? It's maybe close at home, maybe far abroad. What's the message we should take? The message is repent. Because unless you repent, you too will perish. Unless you turn, you too will face the judgment of God in that great and terrible day that is coming. Calamity strikes and the call goes out and God is speaking so we can hear where we will not ignore the message that he's giving to us. And the message is repent. This is what we need to hear. So you notice that Joel models it for us. Verse 19, to you, O Lord, I call. There's gospel hope in that single phrase. You go back to the words of Christ, that as many as come to me, I will in no wise cast out. What happens when you see the disaster of your own sin through the disasters that are happening around you? What happens when you turn to the Lord and you confess your sins, those deepest, darkest sins that you hide even from yourself? And we think, if I turn to the Lord, it's only going to be more disaster, then judgment will come because I can't tell anybody about this. And he says, if you confess your sins, the Lord is faithful and just to forgive. And so what do you do when you see disaster, when you see Ukraine, when you see Haiti, when you see things happening in the world, when you see things happening close at home? To you, O Lord, I call. Cry out to him. Know the truth of his gospel and his goodness. See the blessing of salvation in Christ as he calls you to himself. Let's pray together. O Lord, we pray that you would make us to listen where you call. Give us faith in you, O Lord, and help us to walk with you. Turn our eyes and our hearts to you in prayer. Give us true repentance that you give us life in Christ's name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.